morning. Our scripture reading is from the book of Galatians in the New Testament. I would like you to turn to that if you pick up a Bible on a chair around you. It's found on page 974. This is a passage we looked at earlier this year as we went through the book of Galatians, but I'm going to take a little different direction with it this morning, beginning in verse 23 through verse 27 in Galatians chapter 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you have given to us your word that is light in the darkness to us. And we are desperately in need of what it tells us because we are living in such in a world that is so bewildering in so many ways. And uh, we know that you are more than able to give to us the guidance and the direction that we need, even to answer the very hardest questions that we have. And though you've given us your word, we are called upon to exercise our minds, to seek to comb through it and find those things that we need to know. And this morning, as we come to you, we ask that you would open our minds to understand this passage and the concepts in it, and we pray that you would move us by your Spirit to obey what we find there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I'd like to explore for a few minutes the teaching in the New Testament that we are children of God. And we are sons of God. Those are concepts that are presented in many places, particularly in the New Testament. And I've said before, and I'm not sure people always understand me, so I want to say it again. These ideas are uh, reflections of something that were already true before God even created us. They're not simply illustrations. I mean, so many people think of the the Bible is though God created human beings and we began to flourish on the planet and we had children and families and we decided that marriage would be a good thing to handle people killing each other over uh, who they had and that kind of thing. And so they, uh, God, God looked around at the world that he'd made and he decided, I, I need to pick out something that will illustrate what I want them to understand. And that's not how it happened. It happened the other way around. God, in eternity past, created us in such a way that certain human experiences like marriage and family, the bearing and raising of children, that those experiences would reflect something that was already true either in his own experience within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or would be true in his purposes with the creatures that he made. And so this is one of those. And uh, it's important for us to think about what it means, this parent-child relationship. 
Because it's meant to be a dim reflection of something that's greater. The the persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed for eternity in an unbroken fellowship or communion with each other in which there was deep love. That was true before God made anything. And what he made, he made in order that that love might be experienced in relationship with others, and particularly he created us, the human race, for that purpose. And he tells us that in our relationship with him, we ought to call him father. And he calls us his children. Now, this week I did a little spade work on gender language, which is quite an issue today. And uh, I, I have to tell you, I'm perfectly suited for this kind of research because I grew up in a family, I've realized as I get older, I sometimes have to explain why I'm so strange. And one of the reasons is that I grew up in a family, and, and like a child, I thought everybody's family is like mine, right? That's what you think when you're three years old or five years old. And um, I thought everyone was like mine, but here are just a couple of things about my family. We had to wear a tie to the dinner table on Sundays. Anybody else experience that? You have to be over 60, I think. And we had to wear a tie on Sundays, had nothing to do with religion whatsoever, just was kind of what we did. And, and uh, at the dinner table, and this happened all the time, but Sundays was the day I remember it because uh, of a reason I'll explain in a minute. We ate in the formal dining room, and uh, my father would have a couple martinis. Anybody experienced that when they were growing up? You know? And then after that, he would want to talk about something. You know, he, he'd, he'd want to talk about, like, interact and sometimes argue a little bit. He wasn't belligerent or anything, but just, and for him it was words. He, he loved to think about words. So we'd have some little conversation going around the table, and suddenly a word would come up. And usually, if he wasn't sure we were using it right, he'd start asking, what do you think that word means? You know, little Tommy, what do you think that word means? And then I'd have to come up with something. And, and uh, we'd argue about that for a little while around the table. And then someone would have to get up. And in the dining room, there was an Oxford English Dictionary. It was about this thick on a, on a podium like this. And, and you all had that, didn't you, when you were growing up? Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, someone would have to look up the word. And then we'd talk about the word. And so I became very interested in language as a result of that. And right now, as our language is changing, and languages always change, but ours is changing under some pressure that is coming externally that doesn't always happen, it is more and more difficult to communicate, especially if you're someone who's called, like me, to teach the Bible. And the reason is there are so many concepts contained in the Bible and the way words are used and the way they were even used in the original languages in which the Bible are written that it's difficult to translate them today and make them gender neutral, uh, which is what the movement is. There are so many ways of expressing God. God is a father. He's not called a mother. He's said to be like a mother, but he's not a mother. He's a father. And, and we call him he, at least in the Bible. Um, there are so many words that are used like man that may be referring to all human beings in some places. Or brothers, which today we would say brothers and sisters. Or sons, which today we would say sons and daughters. But at that time, they were shorthand. And pretty much all languages in the past have been the same. And that is that they have used the male gender to express both masculine things about males, but also to express the generic idea. So you could use in the past the word man, and you could mean a male human being, or you could mean all human beings. 
Now, just to show how slowly language changes in reality, last year we had a a decade-long presidential election. And during that decade, I heard uh, Hillary Clinton, no less than Hillary Clinton, say uh, a sentence that went like this, it is a giant step for man. Now, she didn't mean it's a giant step for a male. She meant it's a giant step for humankind, for all human beings. But that's a phrase that would have been used in the past, and it would have been understood because it was customary for the male gender, he and him, and words like man, to refer to all human beings or to refer to a group of people. And that is changing. Um, I found out that my own daughter, when she was in her early 20s, she, we had a conversation. I realized she didn't understand that. I had to explain to her that, well, she was reading something older literature, and I said, well, that's how they would have referred to all human beings. It would have been called man. Well, the Bible used it that way in the first chapter. You know, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And in that little ditty there, it's saying man, meaning humankind. And when it says, in the image of God, he created him, it doesn't mean the individual human male. It means mankind in the singular, humankind, all humanity. So language has changed today, and it's unfortunate in some ways because it's difficult to understand the Bible at points. And some people can stumble over things and think that they're uh, antiquated because of how they're written But I want to think about one of those concepts this morning. The other one is simpler to understand. And it's really important that we think about preparing our hearts to come to the Lord's table. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper here on the first Sunday of the month, it is my desire to try to orient the whole service and even the message, if I can, in order to prepare us to come and share together in this ordinance that Jesus himself gave to us and commanded us to do on a regular basis. That's how important it is. It's one of only two physical rites, you might say, involving physical elements, the other is baptism, that are given a spiritual uh, significance by the very teaching of Jesus. So we want to prepare our hearts to do that. And these two ideas, particularly this concept of being children of God, is such an important concept that we ought to keep in mind and allow it to be evoked within us when we come to break bread together. What does the Bible communicate about this image of being children of God? Um, what does it tell us about God's feelings for us? What is, does it tell us about what our response should be to him? Now, just to take the gender thing one step further, it's difficult to use some words without explanation. And that's because, as I already said, the, uh, you know what, I already explained this. What am I doing? Yeah. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> okay. This is really good. I, don't, I, I wrote this. Okay, enough about grammar. That's what I should have um, The fact is there's changes in our language, and that's not bad. All languages change. Ours is going to change to move away from gender-oriented language, and what it does is it requires, in one sense, the language to become more specific and longer because you have to say longer sentences in order to communicate things that you could communicate simply in the past. That's always happened. Did anybody grow up on the King James Version of the Bible? 
Okay, it's fewer and fewer people every year when I ask that question. And King James Version uses thee and thou and also uses you. There was a difference between those two things. The language was much more precise than our language now. Thee and thou was singular. If I said, thou art the man, I was pointing to an individual and saying, you, singular, you're the man. If I said, you, that's plural, you people. And what happened when we dropped out thee and thou, thankfully, is we didn't have to deal with thee and thou. The other thing that happened is every time you say you, you have to be clear as to how many people you mean when you say you. Because we no longer have a you singular and a you plural. Uh, languages change. They lose things and they gain things every time they change. But generally, all languages simplify. They lower their vocabulary number. They make simpler their sentence structure and all that as time goes on. It takes hundreds of years. In the Bible, it's important to understand those who are believers in Christ are called children of God and they're called sons of God. And these are rich and meaningful concepts and images. And we want to think about it. Let's think about children first. We gain an image when we think about being a child of God, an image that we have from childhood of being loved and cared for and nurtured and valued and even cherished. Those, those are the images that evokes inside of us when we think about children. There's a passage in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, that Paul says to the Ephesian believers and to us as well, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Now, it's saying imitate God. Be imitators of God as loved, beloved children. And it evokes within us that image that we all have of a child seeking to be like his parents. So you might think of a boy and his father is in the workshop and he's working with wood doing something. And the little boy, he's only three years old, but he sees his father doing that. And he wants to do the same thing. And he picks up wood on the floor and he starts banging it together. You know, even though he's not old enough to put it together, he's wanting to be like his father. And, and you think of a little girl, three years old, and she's in the kitchen, and mommy is baking a cake, and she's watching her do it, and she wants to do the same thing. And I just got in trouble with every feminist in the world, you know, for using gender uh, language that forces people into a gender. I don't mean, well, yeah, I do mean to do that, and uh, I'm sorry. But, you know, the, the point is, imitate God it's, as dearly loved children. It's meant to evoke this sense of being cared for and wanting to be like our heavenly parent. And the words even tell us how we should want to be like our heavenly parent. It's not that he works with wood or that he bakes cake. It's that he loves in a superlative way. So it says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so the sacrificial death of Christ is meant to be the supreme example of what it is we want to imitate as we move through life as God's beloved children. And there's a, a title that's used of Jesus in the New Testament. It happens the first time it is baptism. And it's where you might remember Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan as he comes up out of the water the voice of God the Father speaks from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Well, literally, and most Bibles have this in the margin, in every place where that appears, it says, this is my son, the beloved, the beloved. 
And it's using that same word that's used of Jesus in this passage where it says we should imitate God as beloved children. And it tells us that as God the Father has been in a loving relationship with God the Son, in reality they are one in the person of the Godhead. The communion that they share is what God desires to share with his people. We are beloved children. Again, it raises in us this, this sense of nurture and care and, and being uh, cherished. Think of a man who maybe is 30 years old and he's spent his 30 years being manly, you know, and watching football and playing football and all the things that manly men do. And he gets to be 30 and his wife has a baby and suddenly he's, you know, a little child. And, and his whole frame of reference changes. And what he thinks is important changes. And everything is centered around this little girl that he has born. His perspective is all different. He frames his life around being a father and caring for and providing for and protecting this little girl. Now, children are not only deeply loved and cherished. That's one thing it's meant to evoke in us. But children are also provided for. You know, especially little children, there's an instinctive realization when the child's born. This creature cannot care for itself at all. It's completely dependent on its parents, particularly its mother, usually, at the beginning of life. And then as time goes on, they begin to grow up and they start to do things on their own. But if any of you have had children, raised children, or grown up in a family, I hope that would cover all of us, you know, you realize there's there's this image of a, a dinner table and the children come there and no parent with any wisdom wants the children to grow up with any insecurity about having food. Even if there is a problem financially, parents, especially when their children are young, they keep those things from them because they want them not to wonder if there's going to be food tomorrow, but to expect that there will be food. They, they don't want their children to expect to come to the table and be lectured. You know, I, I wanted to buy a tool this week, but I couldn't because I had to buy food for you to eat. There are parents who do that, and it's like every time you hear a story about it, there's something wrong. That's not the way people should treat children. Children should be secure in the abundant provision that they have in life. And those are the things the Lord's table are meant to evoke within us when we think about being of children of God that we are dependent on him, that he provides for us everything that we need. It's a picture of that. Now, it's a mock meal, you might say. This is not a real meal. We don't come here to fill up on the bread and the cup. It's only a symbolic action in that sense, in which we come here to experience this sense of how dependent we are on God. We are like children in a family coming together to the family table, And this visually reminds us of that. And it should do that this morning. Feeling of security, of provision, of being cherished and provided for freely, abundantly. Now, there's another image the New Testament uses that is similar, but it has a different significance. And it's characterized by the word sons. Like in the passage that I read to you, it it says... You are, or excuse me, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, this is where translation today becomes very difficult. Because when we hear the word sons, we think of male children. 
And a, a girl, a teenage girl reading this passage might think, well, I guess God is only concerned for male children. He wants to have male children. What's the deal? You know, it doesn't seem right. And, and I want you to understand the writers of the Bible and the translators of the Bible until the last 30 to 50 years would never have thought that way. They would have asked, does this mean male children? Because sons can mean that. Or does it mean male and female children, but it's using the generic shorthand for children of both, you know, male and female. Which one is it? And uh, it's important to understand that there's a couple things you could do with that if you're translating the Bible today. You could say sons and daughters, to be clear that it means sons and daughters, not just sons, male children. Or in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. Uh, the original language doesn't use the word daughters, but that doesn't really matter. Sometimes all translators have to add something to make clear what was meant in the original. The other way you could handle it is what most Bibles are doing today, is to use the word children. Um, the New International Version, which is a very good version, I'm not, doing, not meaning to discourage its use, um, it uh, recently, in 2011, changed a great deal and had to change the imprint inside. It now says 2011 version. Most people are familiar, if they used it in the past, with the original version of the NIV in 1984, but everything sold today is the 2011 version, and they have made a lot of moves towards being more gender neutral, which, again, that's part of what our language is doing, and that's what they do with this passage. It says, uh, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Now, that is a fine translation. Children does mean boys and girls, so it fits in that sense. The problem is this. In the passage itself, if you look at it carefully, it is meant to draw a contrast between children and sons. Like if you look at the passage right before that, it says the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Well, a guardian is someone appointed or acting as a parent for a little child. And it's using a word that would have described someone who was responsible for a little child to give them all the rules that they needed to follow as they go through life. When to brush their teeth, when to eat, when to go to bed, when to get up. Everything is regimented just like for a child. That's what we do with little children. And it's contrasted by the word sons. Happens in the next paragraph as well. I mean that the heir, chapter 4 and verse 1, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave. And he goes on showing that he doesn't mean he's a slave, literally. It simply means that a little child is in the same position as a slave in a household in the ancient world, in that, excuse me, a little child is told what to do at every moment, is under someone else's authority every second of the day, just like a slave is. A little child is like a slave, he says, but then he goes on and he points out, but now that Christ has come, we receive the adoption of sons, verse 5. So it's drawing this contrast. It means that under the old covenant, people were treated as little children. 
The law gives strict rules about every single aspect of life, and it's as though God were child training his people, giving them the elements of life that they needed to know, both the moral rules as well as ceremonial actions that they needed to undertake in worship to show what God is like and how worshipers should approach God. That's what the Old Testament is like. But in Christ, now we are treated not as children, but as adults. And it uses the word sons to refer to an adult human being as opposed to a child. So the word children of God, while it's a perfectly usable New Testament phrase, probably isn't the best one to use here. The writer's contrasting these two things, childhood and adulthood. And it's really emphasizing the aspect of the Christian life that is like adulthood in the passage, that has to do with inheritance that we receive and responsibility, which is what usually happens in adulthood. It also picks up on the Roman custom of adoption. That's why it says sons, adoption as sons. That's a single word in the language that it was written in, and it referred to a Roman custom where an adult person would adopt another adult. In some cases, the adult was older than him or her, but usually younger, adopt an adult person and make them his heir. And it was called, single word, adoption of son, as a son. And um, that's being picked up in this phrase. Now, enough about translation. The idea is that we are not just children coming to the family table. We are also sons and daughters of God in our maturity. An adult child is mature and expected to act and live like a mature person. What it means is that the lessons of childhood have been internalized. So if in childhood I was taught all of these things that help me to understand personal hygiene, that I should clean my body and brush my teeth and all of those things every day, those things are now internalized. They're a part of the way that I live because now I'm an adult. I don't expect to have mom or dad or whoever call me and remind me to do those things. They've been internalized in in the same way. A Christian is meant to be a believer, a follower of Christ, for whom all the lessons of childhood have been internalized. I must engage in spiritual hygiene, so to speak, by confessing my sins and relying on the blood of Jesus for forgiveness on a regular basis as I go through life. I need to engage in uh, nourishment and feed myself and care for myself through reading the Bible and praying. Those are things we are expected to do as adults. That's what God has led us into as we are viewed as children now in our adulthood. And, and um, we are expected to be not only mature, but something that goes along with maturity, responsible. That's another aspect of adulthood. We are responsible when we become adults, to, in a sense, recapitulate what we experienced in childhood. And what I mean is, now we change roles, and we become the parent, and we have children, and we are responsible to make sure that those little children are cared for and provided for at the family dinner table and those kinds of things. We become those who love and care for others. In other words, the Christian life is compared to a child in his or her maturity, a son or a daughter of God. Those of us who have raised children from infancy through adulthood know how differently adult children and little children 
are to be dealt with. Adult children are peers in a sense, though they can never be entirely peers with us because we're a generation ahead, because we changed their diapers when they were small, because we saw all the foolish things that they did when they were small, and we remember the foolish things we did when we were small and we had parents. We're expected at that point to contribute to the growth of others, the development of others. And that's another thing that we're reminded when we come to the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, we're not only imaging being children of God, although we're not to lose that image. We come and we come to the table and we receive the abundant provision by the grace of the Father. And at the same time, we come as sons and daughters of God. We come as adult children. And when we take these elements by the grace of the Father, we're also being reminded of the maturity we're expected to show and the responsibility that we're expected to show as we move through life. In reality, in the family of God, there are no mothers and fathers. There are only older brothers and sisters and younger brothers and sisters, and we all have one parent, and that is God. And so when we come down around the table, we have different levels of responsibility based on our maturity, as well as the responsibility that God gives to us individually. But we are all responsible. And that means that we can't come as consumers, just asking what's in it for me. Because we expect in a family to receive from others. And we expect they expect that we also give to them. We contribute our abilities and characteristics for their good. We, we can't be consumers. And it means that when we come to the table, we're reminding ourselves we're each responsible for how we live. It's not that the church is responsible for me. The church provides certain things to help you to live a Christian life. But the church is not responsible to make you spiritual, to make you live for God. We are each responsible before God to depend on him and to grow. And all of those things are meant to come into play when we come to the Lord's table. This is a part of our identity We are children of God, and in Christ, we are not only children with all the image of care and nurture and all that that is meant to bring to us. We are also adult sons and daughters with all the maturity and responsibility that's meant to bring to us. Let's pray that we will experience that as we come to the table today. Again, our gracious Father, we thank you that you Call us to yourself through Jesus Christ. And you give to us this way that is meant to evoke within us all kinds of feelings. It gives us feelings of being loved and cherished. And even if that's not exactly what we experienced in our childhood, the truth is our childhood is just a dim reflection, even at its best, a dim reflection of your love or us, which is perfect, is not, is not mixed with any lack of understanding or mixed with any personal issues that you might have had that kept you, keep you from being the father. You are the exemplar of what a father is. And so as we move through life, even as we come to the table on a regular basis, we can allow you to reconstruct our understanding of who you are, what it means to be a father, to have a father. And we can experience, by your grace, more and more of the, the nurture and the love and 
of being cared for that we are meant to experience. At the same time, we are called to come as sons and daughters and to be reminded of our responsibility. We pray that you would do that for us. Use our fellowship to build that inside of us. Use these experiences where we do what you commanded us to do and come to this table and take of these elements to be a means, since you yourself gave it, that you would use to build who we are, how we feel about ourselves, how we treat other people, and especially how we think and feel about you. We pray this in Jesus' name.